Good evening. So yeah, the topic tonight is a book study on the book of Colossians. Uh, it's a relatively short book compared to some books, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of practical, a lot of familiar lessons in the book. So we'll just go over it. Um, I think the uh, to understand, I guess, the overall picture of the book. Uh, yeah, there's there's so much stuff in the book. We're not going to get not going to do a deep dive on anything. Um, but yeah, to, to, to just to, first of all, to take a step back, I guess, to get an overall picture of the book. Is that we ask the question, okay, who wrote it? Anybody know who wrote Colossians? We'll get you interacting a little bit to start with. Paul did. <laughs> right. Um, somewhere I read it said it's along with Timothy. So I don't know if Timothy was there, if they were, I don't know. I'm not sure where that name got brought in. But yeah, Paul wrote it. And then where was he when he wrote it? Uh, he was, it said he was around, somewhere around AD 60. Um, and while in prison at Rome, there was some thought, somebody said that there was some thought that maybe he was in, this was another time when he was in prison, but I don't know if we know 100%, but, he, but it was around that time. So we'll say it was, well, he was in, in prison in Rome writing to, uh, to the church there. Uh, if you recall the story in Acts 25, so Paul was on trial with, under Festus, and the Jews wanted him to bring him to trial in Jerusalem, but Paul appealed to Caesar. And... So while he was waiting to be sent to Rome, King Agrippa and Festus were talked to Paul again. Um, and Agrippa made the comment at one point, he said, this, this man might have been set free had he not appealed to Rome or appealed to Caesar. So Paul may not have even ended up there, but he did. He wanted to, yeah, he, anyway, so to his life, then he ended up, ended up in Rome. Uh, eventually sailed to Rome where he wrote numerous letters, including uh, this one to, likely including this one to Colossians. So who, who is he writing to then? So it's called Colossians. Uh, it was written to the church in Colossae. Um, from what I read, it was they met in the home of Onesimus, who owned Philemon. So you remember the book of Philemon, where Paul wrote the letter to his owner Onesimus. And so they said the church of Colossae met in his home. Um, really, the church of Colossae was in a small town. So it was about... Uh, 11 miles south of Laodicea, and there's another town there close by, I can't remember, uh, Hierapolis or something. So there's a, several cities, towns there close by. So I was trying to get a picture, okay, where's Colossae at today in relation to just the yeah, modern countries, cities? And if, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Terrell, you know, but from what I can see, it's about 70 miles roughly east of where Jordan was at. The uh, little uh, island of Samos, Greece, I think is where I-58 is. Um, and so it's straight across. It's the island really close there. And, and so it's just, yeah, not too far east of there is where Colossae was. Um, I believe from what I've read, the town is, doesn't, uh, no longer exists. Um, and, um, yeah, just, it just disappeared. But... So that's where it was written. The, char- uh, the church was started by, I believe they, they believe it was started by Epaphras, um, who had re- Paul mentions him in here, and who sounds like Epaphras had come back and reported their faithfulness to God to Paul, and then so while Paul was there, he was writing to encourage them and to to warn them. Uh, the church was facing some uh, teaching that Paul wanted to correct, respond to, and he doesn't go into. Uh, exactly what that 
what the wrong teaching was, but you can get some idea just by what he was emphasizing. And uh, what I yeah, what I read about it, it appears like it wasn't. Yeah, they're not exactly clear on what the what that false teaching was, but it was some sort of blend of uh, Judaism and paganism, and yeah, don't know exactly. But I find it interesting that Paul, in responding to that, instead of focusing on what was wrong and tearing apart everything that was wrong with what he was, what they were facing, instead he he focused on what the truth was. He focused on the truth that, you know, if, if that they they understand the truth, then they'll recognize where there's wrong. Yeah. So I think we can take a lesson from that. Instead of becoming an expert on what is on all the wrong teachings out there, because there's a long list of them, uh, instead become an expert on what is the truth. The first two chapters focus on doctrinal teachings. Um, the the emphasis in one place I read the key verses Colossians 1.18. This is he also the head of the body in the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The emphasis is really like Christ is preeminent. And so the first two chapters focus on, on Christ's preeminence, like the doctrinal part of it. And then the last two chapters focus on kind of our response to that, what the Christian's life should look like with the fact that Christ is preeminent. And there's a section in um, a Wearsby study Bible notes that I just wanted to read because I tried to summarize or get the, pull the ideas and I said, in the end, I said, I'm just going to read this couple paragraphs. It says, the church today desperately needs the message of Colossians. We live in a day when religious toleration is interpreted to mean one religion is just as good as another. Our pluralistic spirit tends to approach all spiritual systems with an, quote, equal time, equal truth, unquote, assumption that puts destructive heresies and demonic teaching on the same level with the gospel. Some people try to take the best from various religious systems and manufacture their own private religion. To many people, Jesus Christ is only one of several great religious teachers with no more authority than they. He may be prominent, but he is definitely not in first place preeminent. The result of making everyone and everything equally valid and equally important is that subtly they all become equally unimportant. This is an age of syncretism. People are trying to harmonize and unite many different schools of thought and come up with a superior religion. Our evangelical churches are in danger of diluting the faith in their attempt to lovingly understand the beliefs of others. Principles and ideas derived from mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism, and man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into the church. They are not denying Christ, but they are de-emphasizing, dethroning, and robbing him of his rightful place of preeminence. And that leading up to that last statement, that they are lots, there's a lot of false teachings that don't necessarily directly, some of them do, but some of them don't directly dethrone Christ, remove him, um, uh, deny Christ, but it's that, that idea of watering it down and, and making him no longer preeminent um, and first. For the outline, uh, I'm going to go through the whole book. Um, well, yeah, just for the, for the outline that I looked at to kind of frame this around, I used from the, also from the Wearsby Study Bible Notes. It just I thought it clearly divided it up and laid it out well. Um, so I borrowed it from there. But the first section... Or the, it basically breaks it down into three categories. 
Um, the first one is doctrine, and it's Christ's first place of preeminence declared, and then it's, um, it's in the gospel message and redemption and creation in the church and in Paul's ministry. Uh, the second is danger, so Christ's first place preeminence defended, um, warning of empty philosophies, religious legalism, man-made disciplines, and then the third was Christ's first place, or duty, Christ's first place demonstrated in personal purity, Christian fellowship in the home, in daily work in Christian witness, and in Christian service. Uh, Paul tends to say a lot in a short period of time. So like I said earlier, I'm not going to do a deep dive on any one of these things, but try to take a, I guess, a flying look through the, through the overall book and yeah, some of these, some of the topics could be sermons, or many of them could be sermons in and of themselves. Uh, but to, hopefully this can give you a picture of kind of a glimpse of the overall book, how the smaller topics fit together, and um, in this letter, it's interesting to just think about that Paul wrote this, picturing Paul where he's writing this to a church in Colossae, but also really, um, there's a lot of things even, you could say that Paul wrote it for us today. So getting into the first part, uh, Christ's first place declared um, in the gospel message. We can see where um, it says in verse uh, verse 8, it talks about Epaphras, our beloved bondservant, who is the faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in, in the Spirit. Um, and it goes on to say how Paul kept them in their prayers. So it appears like Epaphras came back, and I don't know if they knew each other prior, but they at some point they... They talked, and Epaphras told him told him about this church, and um, so Paul talks. It says he he kept them in their prayers, and he was encouraged by hearing about them bearing fruit and growing and increasing in the knowledge of God, and encouraged Paul to hear their story of faithfulness. And so he, um, yeah, it was. Um, so that, I guess where he where you first heard about the, them in the church, and then Christ's preeminence in redemption, um, two verses in verses thirteen and fourteen. Just thinking about the word redemption, um, it's it's really the at its core is what salvation is. Um, it says he it says for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So after, um, after our fall in the garden, go back, you know, in the beginning, man lived, they walked, we walked with God, and, we, and mankind fell. And ever since then, we needed a redeemer, we needed redemption, and you know, blood sacrifices only temporarily covered our sins. God set up that system where they would have to sacrifice on a regular basis, but it only was a temporary cover. And we needed that. Re- we needed redemption, um, a better redemption, and it's something that would be a permanent, better sacrifice. So, thinking about the, what the word redemption means, it's a the dictionary talks about it being a releasing effect, a releasing affected by the payment of a ransom. So if we're redeemed, we're basically we're in bondage to Satan, to to sin, and Christ paid the paid the price, paid the cost 
uh, paid the ransom for us to be released. Uh, which, see, so you think, okay, we paid that price. Obviously, he, it was a high price he paid. He paid his life. Um, it, was, uh, it, it cost a lot, I guess is what I'm saying. As we think about the value of things and how much we appreciate it, do we take that lightly? Do we, do we understand the true cost of it? And this is a, a small picture of that. But years, years ago, at work, there used to be a time when pop was, a tw- uh, was 25 cents in the pop machine, and basically at cost. And somebody would offer you, you'd be like, hey, I'll buy you a pop. OK, great. Well, it's only 25 cents. You go, that's a pretty small sacrifice. I'm not sure as many people did that when it jumped to 50 cents. But regardless. But if somebody then, comparing that to then somebody saying, hey, I'll pick you up Starbucks. You know, I'm coming into work. I'm going right by. I'll pick you up Starbucks. Well, you know that's a greater sacrifice many, many more times than a 25-cent can of pop. Uh, Luke 7, verses 47 says, For this, um, Jesus was talking about the woman who, who was forgiven much. Uh, and he says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, um, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So when we get a glimpse of what it cost Christ, what that price was that he paid, it helps us understand the size of that sacrifice and our gratitude should be proportionate to that. Uh, Moving on to the next line, the uh, Christ preeminence in creation, verses 15 through 17, um, says all things were created by him. Uh, But it said both in heavens and earth, and it goes on to list that, but it said all, yeah, so all things created through him, and for him. It was all about Christ. Um, yeah, That's, that, that pretty much sums it up. Not, it wasn't made necessarily for us, but to reflect his glory, to, for his pleasure. And that, in, that includes us. Uh, uh, humans being created, mankind being created for a relationship with God. As demonstrated by even in the Garden of Eden where um, where God walked with Adam and Eve on a daily basis uh, before that relationship was broken and the, and the, yeah, the separation came. Uh, moving on to the section of verses 18 to 23, it says Christ is the head of the body in the church. So Christ is preeminent in the church. He is, he is the head. Um, in verse 19, says it was for the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And looking it up, I think I believe that means the, the fullness of deity. We've heard before, I mean, there's, there's a lot of controversy, I guess you'd say historically, on people misunderstanding who Jesus was, saying, well, he, is, he wasn't really God, he was just a man. Or he was all God, and so he wasn't really man. But he, this talks about, the, I mean, the fullness. He's... A, he's Fully God, fully man, um, and we, yeah, it's it's so he's first there, and he is head of the church, head of the body. Um, in chapter two, verse nine, we'll get to that later, but it ties in with this. It says, "For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." And so, yeah, just again, it's, he's preeminent there. 
verses 21 and 22 talk about what um, talk about us, I guess, before we were part of the church. It said, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, um, and then from there transformed to being holy and blameless, blameless and beyond reproach. The, um, the most important thing there is not how, we, um, not how we look on the outside or in our own sight, um, but all these things. It talks about basically, basically but talks about the heart condition, not necessarily the outward looking or how we, how we look on the outside, but that we were formerly alienated and engaged in evil deeds and our hearts were wrong. Um, Jesus called the religious leaders, when he was here, he called them uh, whitewashed tombs where they had been clean on the outside, but on the inside had dead man's bones. And so like, the, like that here, um, where Jesus came and he changes us to be holy and blameless on the inside. And um, better, how much better to be scarred and imperfect on the outside, but holy on the inside. Uh, the next section deals with Paul's ministry and his mission to the taking the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles. Um, he was made, Paul was made a minister by God. It says, to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As verse 27 and 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. So Paul's, Paul's mission there was to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, um, which is Christ. So his mission was to spread Christ, the news, the, uh, the gospel of Christ, to Gentiles. So getting into the... the in that outline, the second section of danger, uh, Christ's first place defended. The first part of that is being, this is beware of empty philosophies. So the first 10, cha- uh, 10 verses of chapter two. Um, starting into that, we see how Paul talked about his care for the, the people at the church, the church in Colossae and Laodicea. And he cared um, for them that their, so their, their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be knit together in love, and in verses two to three, part of that it says all the wealth that comes, or that they would attain, quote, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So thought about that with, so he wanted them to come to know, or come to know all, it says all the wealth that comes from full assurance. So, when we hear the word wealth, we often think of like excess, riches, abundance of, of resources, often, most often money, but it's, and it's an abundance. Um, and so we live in a world with an abundance of information, a wealth of information. You can pull out a computer out of your pocket and get almost any information that you're wanting to find. Um, it's easily accessible, um, it's all over be it how much of that information has actually true lasting value. 
you know, Paul, so Paul talked about the, um, talked about uh, Christ and it said, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Christ, knowing Christ is the true, there's actually value in that knowledge. So it doesn't matter just that we gain information, but that we, that we gain something of value. And that was Paul's emphasis here. Um, yeah, and as compared to um, em empty philosophies, there's also the, all the worldviews that are out there, but yet the one, you know, finding Christ is, is what we need to find. In the fourth verse of uh, chapter 2, he says that... Um, He said, I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. Um, so kind of back to what I mentioned earlier. In this whole book, Paul didn't go through and line by line tear down the false teaching. But he focused on what they should be focusing on. And I've heard, we've all heard the story, I'm sure, of how the banker, bankers or bank tellers learn how to recognize counterfeit money. They, what they do is they don't study all the different ways to counterfeit money, but they study the true money, and so they recognize it when it's wrong. So that's kind of like here. Paul's wanting them to, to find Christ, to know him, to find all those riches, so that when they come across false teaching, they recognize it, and they recognize that something's not right. It'd be, it'd be pretty impossible to, anyway, to try to learn all the potential false teachings that are out there and available. Yeah, and so Paul, yeah, Paul believed that if they if they learned the truth, learned through about Christ, they would uh, avoid being persuaded away from that. And down in verse eight, he talks about that again a little bit. He says, "See too that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men." Um, rather than Christ. And instead we're to follow Christ. Then in verse, yeah, in verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. So again, reminding us who is first, who we should be paying attention to and following. The next section talks about uh, be, being aware of, or being, yeah, cautioning against religious legalism. And verse 14 reminds us of what Christ did in redeeming us. It says, And having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So Christ already paid that. Um, paid that bill, paid that debt, and ransomed us. We don't have to, again, with our actions, pay the, pay the price. Like going to college to earn a diploma. We're not... We're not going through life trying to earn that paycheck uh, or that reward, but Christ already paid for it. And so, yeah, we, yeah. Um, in verse 16, it says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. So if we think about which I would, we would agree that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't buy into legalism and the teaching of, of where we're basically feel like we have to earn our salvation by what we do. 
And Paul says, you know, no one's, no one's to act as your judge in that regard. What do you think about how far do we take that? I, uh, a number of years ago, I heard a sermon series titled, I believe it was entitled Jesus Plus Nothing. And his whole thing was, you know, Jesus is all we need. But then he went so far as to say, basically, like, you know, the, feel, it's, the feeling I remember getting was kind of like, don't judge me. You know, I got Jesus. You can't tell me not to drink alcohol. You can't tell me not to use bad language. I don't, I don't remember, but he spent the whole time basically defending that I can, it felt like you can do whatever you want. And so it, uh, there is a ditch on that side as well. Um, and, it's, and it has a seed of truth in the sense that we, we can't earn our salvation. Um, so there's really, there's, there's ditches on both sides. And to... Paul's warning here against the one side of it uh, that not to not to have others judge us and say well yeah you did this so you're not saved you do this or you have to attend this church or do that thing to be saved um, there's a quote that I uh, wrote down once um, I think he I think it was when is an Isaac Gaiman I think he was when he was here for revival meetings one year but he said it's not legalism to be obedient to the scriptures and so there is a there's a path down the middle where we do God does call us to obey. Uh, we can't underestimate the importance. Don't want to under, underestimate the importance of obedience. Um, so John fifteen ten says if you, Jesus is saying if you keep my commandments you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so it's yeah, obedience is very important, but it's not going to earn our salvation. The next section, starting verse 18 through 23, is thinking of being, being aware of uh, man-made disciplines. And a quote I'd written down, I think it was Randy Alcorn that said, um, this is asceticism for its own sake is not holiness. Um, so thinking of man-made disciplines of like being really strict on, on how we act or, wh- or what, I guess, what we... What we do, I think of like some a monk in a monastery, where they have stripped down, where they have a robe and a you know cold stone bedroom with a wooden bed with no pillow or just very very you know they deprive themselves physically, but doing that for its own sake is not necessarily holiness. It didn't make them more holy to do that. Um, yeah, again for its own sake. Obviously, there's there's ways that we are to deny our flesh, but yet. Doing that for its own sake is not going not to change our heart. It changes our outside and how we, how we feel, but it's not necessarily going to change our heart. Um, I tried to think of ways, yeah, maybe I'll let you think of ways that we do that ourselves. It's easier to look around us and see other things. Um, see those, yeah, those around us and maybe that where they're making a decision on how they're going to live, but yet you can see that the heart shows up through it. Um, a couple examples I can think of um, when I was at SMBI, this, I guess this is where I noticed it, but when I was at SMBI, you'd see some girls coming there from churches that required cape dresses. And I have nothing against the cape dress, but you can see, you could, you could see in some that did the cape dress, but didn't really believe in it, because you could have an immodest cape dress. Um, so it, it it was something that they did because they had to, but it didn't change their heart, and it, and it showed up through that. 
Um, other groups maybe have make a rule about the color of car you have or the all the, all those different details of things. You can make that rule, but a black BMW is still pretty classy, and you know, nothing necessarily against a BMW. But the the point being, you can make those rules and you can restrict yourself, try to restrict yourself or a group into a corner, and the heart will come through. And so if our heart's not changed by Christ, those man-made disciplines are not going to save us. Um, I've seen some pretty shiny or flashy buggies too, for that matter. And you can see the heart coming through. Um, again, not to, not to judge anybody else. It's just, just, again, I'm sure, look in the mirror tonight, think about the ways we do it and I do it. There was, um, in one of the study Bibles, I was looking at, there was a, a list of things that said, so we can guard against man-made religions um, by asking these questions about any religious groups. And I guess in thinking of that, whether it's religious legalism or the man-made discipline. So when you think about a group or a, a teacher, like a cult teacher, um, think about it, or I guess if you're asking if it is a cult or, or more of a man-made religion, these questions will help clarify that. So does it stress man-made rules and taboos rather than God's grace? Does it foster a critical spirit towards others? Or does it exercise discipline discreetly and lovingly? Uh, does it stress formulas, secret knowledge, or special visions more than the Word of God? Does it elevate self-righteousness, honoring those who keep the rules rather than, rather than elevating Christ? Or does it neglect Christ's universal church, claiming to be an elite group? Uh, does it teach humiliation of the body as, as a means to spiritual growth rather than focusing on the growth of the whole person? Or lastly, does it disregard the family rather than holding it high in high regard as the Bible does? Uh, moving on to chapter 3, um, in the outline I'm using it, it's the section called, um, the third and final section called Duty, Christ's First Place Demonstrated. So as it comes out in our lives. Uh, in chapter 2, Paul talked about the wrong methods, uh, the empty philosophies or legalism, man-made disciplines, the wrong methods of being right with God. Moving to chapter 3, he shifts to his recommendation for how to live and how to live out the Christian faith. Um, and again, it's keeping a focus on Christ instead of human efforts. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, um, is the first part of that with personal purity. It says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you think about what being raised with Christ means, if you're raised with Christ, it would imply that you first died with Christ. Like in verse 3, it says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So since you've been raised, or if you've been raised with Christ, well, yeah, if, if you haven't been raised with Christ, there's, there is no seeking the things that are above. You're, you have not, I mean, Got to be in that category first. But once you've been raised with Christ, um, keep on seeking the things that are above instead of things below. And Paul seemed to be emphasizing that because he said it, it feels like um, saying it two different ways, or saying the same thing and changing the wording. And so emphasis by repetition. Um, verse 1, uh, keep seeking the things that are above. And then in verse 2, set your minds on things above. 
Let's just keep, again, pointing back to Christ and, and the things that are above. Um, one note, just thinking about that, is that if you think what is thinking about the things in heaven, it's in some ways to look at life from God's perspective and to seek what he desires. And like Matthew, or like in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I think similarly, we can't uh, set our mind or affection on Christ or on things above and also on the world. So by, by choosing the things that are above, by setting your mind, um, by seeking that, setting your mind on that, it shoves out the things below. Um, as, as, as that, the more and more that Christ fills us and the things above fill our lives, then it shoves out the things that are below. Uh, verses five to ten speak of removing, removing the old, somewhat like a, like if you're out shoring and you're all dirty, taking off that old set of dirty clothes and replacing with something new and clean. Um, verse five lists off number of things that therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead uh, dead to immorality impurity, passion, evil desires and greed which amounts to idolatry and um, then also verse 8 but now put, put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech do not lie uh, verse 9 <clears throat> So since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And in the middle of that, in verse 7, he says, you know, in them you, you also once walked. Um, saying, you know, we, you, were, you were that way. So if you think about how much feeling a dead body has, um, there's no feeling there. There's no temptation to, to overeat, or there's no temptation to do any of those things. And so as we consider ourselves... Um, consider our body dead to these things. There should, it, it's, it's saying that we, don't, we aren't tempted by that. It's um, considering it dead. And as, I guess as we are tempted by it, we realize that that portion of our, our, our bodies are, are not dead yet and um, having to crucify the flesh because, yeah, then one is dead. It doesn't desire that any longer. And then, uh, yeah, then verse 10 talks about putting on a new self. So having put on the new self, that is, who is being renewed to true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. So it's not just any new self, but it's, um, and it's unlike the new age teaching today of, well, we just need to dig deep in ourselves, and once we really know ourselves, then we'll be better. It's not that at all, but it's, it's finding our new self in Christ and being more like him, being renewed by the true knowledge um, in the image of, of Christ. One thing, um, going down to verse 11, one thing humans do consistently is we, tend to, is we divide ourselves into classes. Uh, we divide ourselves into classes of, of so many different things, and then we're we tend to be partial to the groups that we're in and we relate to and understand and tend to judge those who are outside of that group and another one. But it could be anything. Groups like uh, different, you know, the other shift, first or second shift at work. 
could be between workers and management. It could be between the rich and the poor, um, the good-looking and the not-as-good-looking, um, Republican and Democrats, or tall and short, black and white, citizens of a country, aliens, um, you know, somebody, migrants from another country. And I just, I like verse 11. Um, I guess the, the biblical gospel is the answer to all of that. It's a, it's a simple answer. It's not easy, but it's a simple answer. And that we've all, um, I guess going back to Romans, we've all sinned, uh, Romans 3.23, we for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in that same group. Uh, we've, we've all fallen. And then back to this Colossians um, 10 and 11, it said, and put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul lists off a number of these categories and classes they would have used back then, but it says that's, you know, the renewal that comes from the gospel isn't partial to if you're a slave or if you're a free man, if you're rich or poor, if you're from this country or that country or, you know, whoever. Christ is, Christ is all in and all. If, if, yeah, if we could, as the more we understand that, the more we live that out um, in our world today, it'd be a better thing. Uh, the next section is speaking of Christian fellowship. Um, and I would change this line a little bit from... Um, that's the, that's the phrase he uses in, in the outline from Wearsby that I'm using. But I don't think it's just referring to fellowship between Christians, but really how Christians relate to the world around them, to everybody around them, not just Christians. Um, no, matter where we, no matter where we are, unless we're alone in a cabin in the woods and don't ever get out, we're going to meet people, we're going to deal with people that dis- disappoint us or downright annoy us. And these verses talk about responding to that. Um, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And then beyond all, those, all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If we could all live that out, the conflict would go down. But again, it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, and reading through this, I thought of a conversation with a coworker earlier this year. He was um, pretty wound up. I guess it goes into that first and second shift thing. But he was pretty wound up about somebody on the opposite shift and what they'd done to him. Um, in his mind, it was something they'd done to, done to him intentionally. Um, but it's something that made his job more difficult. And I was talking, just hearing his side and seeing how I could help. And um, as we talked, he'd asked, he asked me the question, he said, well, how do you deal with it when someone disappoints you? I was like, well, that's, that's kind of what happens in relationships. Um, this person has high expectations for people around him and struggles, really struggles to deal with it when people let him down. And it's a valid question. I mean, you, Every one of you could list areas where people have, have let you down, have disappointed you. Um, maybe an area that you know they can do better and they let you down. Um, it's just, it's real. It's a valid question. 
And I think these verses then give an answer to how we are to respond to it. Um, but just don't try to do it on your own strength because these things, this, this takes the, the fruit of the Spirit working in you to do this. To think of being, being hurt, being uh, disappointed by somebody, and then responding with a heart of compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, um, forgiving each other. And I think the key there in the middle is just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so it's keeping perspective that goes to the humility part of it, remembering what God's done for us and, and responding in that way. Uh, the next several verses, 18 through 21, talk about the family life, which uh, Dwayne talked about more this morning. But Paul just goes through kind of every, every role in the family, wives, husbands, children, and we all have something to work on and to help, help our family life. And you notice that none of these things are dependent on the other party filling their command. He doesn't say, well, wives be subject to your husbands as long as they love you. And husbands love them as long as they're subject to you. Or children, obey your parents as long as they don't, you know, obey your dads as long as they don't exasperate you. Or, um, but it, it doesn't do that. But all of us were to, God asks us to do the right thing and fill our part. Yeah. And then... The next section in our daily work, um, chapter 3, verse 22 through the first verse in chapter 4, he's talking to slaves, which we don't, in our world, we don't really, um, thankfully, we don't have the same slavery level that they would have back then. And, But like the rest of his letter, Paul takes this and shifts the focus from things on earth, um, the masters, to Christ. Um, I guess I remember hearing that Christianity was a, I don't know if they called it a, a slave's religion. It seemed to spread in, in that group because, I mean, it was, they were the ones maybe the most desperate, the most needy. And so maybe why he talked more to slaves, but he also talks to masters later on. But so he shifts the focus from things on earth to Christ. Um, Verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And I just thought this, this applies, even you take away the, the slave-master relationship, this applies in, in so many different ways. You can picture a, um, a mother with a new baby and the mother's exhausted not getting any sleep and is constantly serving this baby with no return. You know, the baby has no appreciation. It can't express any appreciation. I'm sure it has it. But it can't express any appreciation for the care it's being received. Um, so in a sense, it's a, it's a thankless job. But the mother is, is not just serving this baby who can't say thank you, but is serving Christ. Um, or Picture later in life, an adult who is returning the favor to their parents or parent and serving their elderly parent who has dementia, um, who again, you're serving them tirelessly, probably lost sleep and frustration. And what do they get returned? But they maybe get, maybe you're just getting um, animosity or maybe at times getting that back, animosity and anger due to the confusion and everything caused by uh, 
the disease. But again, they're serving not their parent necessarily, but they're serving Christ through serving their parent. Um, and it could be an employee who's serving a boss who doesn't appreciate him. Um, could be, you name it, every, all those situations. Paul takes, kind of wipes away the clutter and says, don't worry about that, but you're serving Christ. And do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than to men. Because uh, you're not serving that boss, you're not serving this person, but you're serving Christ. But it, yeah, it's hard to, hard to have that vision, but that's what he wants us to have, uh, see beyond what we're doing. Um, a few verses in chapter 4, Wearsby calls that section in Christian witness, um, Christ's preeminence in Christian witness. And it, I guess in thinking about that, it's as we witness for others... I'll just read a couple of verses, but it's, it's verse 2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open, us, open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. So thinking about that, when we're, when we're in missions, when we're witnessing, are we, I mean, ask yourself, are we spreading Mennonite, Mennonite-ism? Are we spreading... Anabaptism? Are we? What are we spreading? Paul here is asking us to, to spread Christ. That we you know, make make known Christ to people. Our our focus shouldn't be on um, you know just going out there and pointing out people's sins. You've seen the protesters protesting um, homosexuality, maybe, and out there with their signs, and they're just very you know the signs full of judgment. Um, while it's true. Our God doesn't necessarily, oh, he may be calling us. You know, there's times that he's calling us, I guess, to that. John the Baptist obviously was beheaded for pointing out sin in the king's life. But ultimately, our focus isn't out there just to spread the judgment, but to bring people to Christ. And, and obviously, along with that is accountability and um, the truth about what their sin is. But it's, it's not about making cultural Mennonites or pointing out people's sins or dealing with lesser things, but pointing people to Christ. Christ, and I guess in the, in the beauty of the gospel message, the redemption. Uh, first, verse 6 says, Let your speech be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you know, you know how to respond to each person. Uh, part of the meaning of grace is liberality. I guess when I hear it, I think of um, liberality and grace with implying undeserved excess something they, do, they don't deserve. So if, if our speech with that truth um, is also spread with a liberality or grace of, of an excess of benefit of the doubt, um, they say there's plenty of time to get back to, or, you know, there's, there's no longer benefit of, of the doubt. But you start with that, showing grace and hum, having humility in ourselves and not putting ourselves up above other people, but showing grace as we share Christ. And the last section that uh, the outline is just the, the verses there where Paul is giving greetings and notes of appreciation, encouragement to the church and to specific people. And then to sum it up, the conclusion, just the idea again, like I said at the beginning, that in this whole thing, Christ is preeminent. Christ is first. 
in all these different areas, in the church, in the world, in creation. Um, and then our lives should be a reflection of that priority with Christ being first, not ourselves, but Christ. So thank you for your attention.